0: Through Hebrews 11, we've been reading about the faith particularly of of great men like Abraham and Moses, um, but also a good number of others along the way. And then in verse 32, our author says this, What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Let's bow in prayer and ask God to help us understand that. Thank you that you've taught us to stand on every promise of your word, as we just sung a moment ago, Lord. Thank you that for uh, the majority of us here, we have uh, started on that life of trusting in your word and in your promises. Thank you that uh, through that, already you've, you've formed this church. You've changed our lives. So we bow in praise before you, Lord, and with confidence as we ask that you will speak to us again as we study your word. That these will not just be um, dry truths, but your word will speak in a living and vibrant way. So that we, Lord, would be people who are more conformed into the kind of people that you call us to be. And for any one of us here, Lord, who has not yet begun that most wonderful of all adventures, the adventure of following Christ, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us in particular in unmistakable ways. And we will leave here as those who have moved from darkness to light, from Lack of faith to faith in you. We rest on you to do all of those things, Lord. We pray that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen. All the way back in the 1950s, researchers began to, um, uh, to, to look at... Um, why people work and in that decade and the following one they found a very large proportion of people um, reported themselves as going to work and, and so on mainly to build a better life for their children in the 1970s and 80s that began to change somewhat. The so-called uh, baby boomer generation, as they, they, they were called, were no longer motivated by intergenerational ambitions. They were working for their own future, for their own retirement, for their own comfort. But then, actually, in, somewhere in the 1990s and onwards, there was a further shift in people's attitudes as they were asked again. The post-boomer generation, what some people have called Generation X, didn't so work so much work even for their own long-term benefits. They worked to enjoy their earnings now. Their personal ambitions became in- increasingly short-term. They were they were working for the next holiday, the next car, or even for the weekend. Frankly, as I think Radio One proclaims very strongly to us. An ambition to, to create a better world for, for their children actually had gone into the far distant future. And their uh, self-development, self-realisation, self-fulfilment, short-term goals had become overwhelmingly the dominant attitude. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that that newer way of thinking actually makes us happier. On the contrary, actually, the evidence is that people who think like that and live like that um, uh, build up over time a sense of long-term disappointment and cynicism about their life. The rising generation, for instance, is the first generation that uh, has ever been recorded since people started um, looking at these things, which is more pessimistic about its future than its parents Even more unfortunately for the Christian church, it seems to me that Christians and churches and church movements have embraced exactly that kind of short-termism. Every church in its publicity is actually, um, uh, finds itself drawn almost inexorably towards promising short-term benefits to prospective uh, uh, attenders, you, every church's website proclaims the church as vibrant and promises that lives get changed, it uh, seems to me as far as I can see, and, and they have to, that's just the, the mood and the culture of the moment, you know, if you put on your website, sometimes our prayer meetings are a bit boring, <laughs> you know, and we're full of people who are struggling with the same sins that they were struggling with five years ago, I'm not sure it would get many new people along. Our culture has this insatiable desire for instant satisfaction, and yet I want to try and persuade you this morning that it is deadly for churches, and probably more importantly for us here, it is deadly for individual Christians, for their life of faith. Of course, there are short-term benefits to in in the, in the Christian life. Actually, the evidence is there's oodles of them. Christians in the short term are happier people. Christians in the short term actually tend to have more savings. Christians in the short term um, are, are more better socially adjusted and and a thousand and one other things. Even healthier. But, it is not the short term benefits that the Bible encourages us to fix our eyes on. Indeed, if we only look at those short term benefits, just like the rest of the world, We will find it may be more enjoyable as we uh, um, anxiously look for the next high and the next excitement and so on in the short term, but there will be a growing sense of disappointment and cynicism in our Christian life. And you can't be a church leader for long without realising that that is endemic amongst so many Christians. They start off so excited about all the wonderful thing, benefits that God is going to give them and then as one way or another those sort of rather superficial hopes that they had get dashed again and again and again, they sink into disappointment and worse faithlessness sometimes. So, uh, Hebrews 11 is really, really important for a generation of exes, of as they get called. Hebrews 11 has been drawing us towards something very, very important that we are going to focus on this morning. Remember, we've been looking through Hebrews 11, um, although we've taken several, several weeks on it, we've missed an enormous amount of of material, but but let me just pick out some of the things that we have learned. We asked, first of all, at the beginning of Hebrews 11, um, what is faith fundamentally? That was a massively important question for the first readers because they were facing enormous persecution. Um, it wouldn't be long, in fact, before they were being uh, executed for their faith, and uh, Hebrews 10. The writer said that they sh- must be people who don't shrink back, but who have faith. So what is this faith? And we first of all saw at the beginning of Hebrews 11, faith is simply the faculty that all people exercise about things that they cannot see. No one lives only by what they can see. The only difference between Christians and others is, is, there, is the difference between what they believe about the un- unseen realms of existence, not whether they believe there are unseen realms themselves, no matter what some of the apologists of atheism might tell you. And Christian faith believes in the creator God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, who rose again so that we can be forgiven and we can have eternal hope, of resurrection life ourselves in a new heaven and a new earth. And we said, right at the beginning, that is a, actually when you examine it, that is a reasonable trust. You'll have to listen to the sermon if you want to know more. Then we then we looked at Abraham. And uh, as the writer portrays Abraham, um, the uppermost um, uh, question is, who or what then shall we trust? If everybody has to trust something, who will we trust? And Abraham learned to trust God and his word. And, remember, his trust was vindicated. We who look back on Abraham's life can see, more than he ever could even, how his trust in God was vindicated. Who shall we trust? Trust the God of the Bible who makes promises and keeps them. And then, then we looked at the life of Moses. And that in Moses we saw that another aspect of Christian faith that we need to take very, very seriously is, is, is that it is about what we long for, not only whom we trust. And we saw that Moses longed for his eternal reward from God more than all the treasures of Egypt and it was that that uh, drove, him, spurred him on to be the leader of God's people Okay, that's, 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 that's how Hebrews 11 has been um, um, building but our last look at Hebrews 11 must focus on something which has actually always been there in the chapter and we've touched on it a number of times but uh, that that comes absolutely centre stage at the end. It is is the most important thing that Generation Xers um, and uh, and short-termers in general must take seriously. We're going to see what Christian faith achieves. What should we expect it to achieve? And the first answer... uh, Altogether rather exciting answer is that biblical faith achieves great things. Look at verse 32. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became uh, powerful in in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their their dead, raised to life again. What an extraordinary list. That he, he just hasn't got time to recount. Gideon, who won his battles, remember, by cutting down his troops to an impossibly small number, so that uh, and then he won by a miracle. Barak, who despite being a bit of a wuss, uh, to be honest, when you look at his life, um, actually did defeat a tank regiment, or, or chariots at least. Um, with only infantrymen, or, or, or Samson, who was, who was something of, of a Robocop and Terminator all combined and won extraordinary victories, or, or Jephthah, who made Bruce Willis look like a wimp, or, or King David, who, who fought... who If he'd been in the Second World War, he would have given the speeches of Churchill and been on the front line uh, uh, on D-Day. I mean, these are extraordinary men, and some of their great victories... Were, were, were won through, through outright miracles. They Daniel um, spent a night in a lion's den and was not eaten. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego survived a furnace, he, uh, he mentions. People were even raised to life. There's an extraordinary range of stories in the Old Testament that suggest absolutely wonderful things can be achieved here and now through Christian faith. and And... As well, it is it it is obvious that in part those things are achieved through miracles, isn't it? Miracle of not being eaten by lions, the miracle of surviving in a furnace, let alone other miracles that are that are perhaps not so obvious, like just a few men defeating a whole army. Perhaps then we should uh, we're being called to expect. Miracles that achieve the most extraordinary thing in our life here and now. That is the whole thrust of a, of a movement uh, amongst churches uh, in this country and especially in the wider world which get, tends to get called health and wealth. People point to stories and passages like this and they say, if we have enough miracles, uh, enough faith, then miracles like these can be ours. If you have enough faith, to defeat your cancer, then you can defeat it. If you have enough faith to be wealthy, then you will have you will be wealthy. Do you have a Do you, do you have a Datsun faith or a or a BMW faith? I remember uh, reading year, years and years ago. And it appeals, you see, to our to our uh, our short term culture, doesn't it? maybe the the God of the the Bible is, about exactly what we rather hope it is, fulfilling our dreams. Well, I want you to hesitate for a moment before you embrace that. First of all, notice that these miracles overwhelmingly are are salvation miracles. Miracles... um, uh, that get mentioned in Hebrews 11. By and large, are miracles about God saving His people? Uh, we're told earlier on by faith. Um, um, by faith, the Red Sea parted for Moses, um, uh, for, for instance. Um, And uh, the fulfilment of all of those Old Testament salvation miracles, the New Testament makes very, very plain, is not particularly found in short-term little salvations, but is found in the strong and firm promise to every believer of eternal resurrection life beyond death. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, said Jesus. He was simply, Jesus was simply not promising that anyone by a simple act of, of so-called faith could avoid death, not at all. But he was promising that embarking on a life of Christian faith and trust assures us of life beyond death. So we must get the emphasis um, right both in this chapter and in the whole Bible, we must also be acutely aware that um, um, miracles, even in the Bible, are very rare. Now, I believe in a God who is sovereignly in control of his whole creation and, as the Bible says, he does as he wills. And so, I believe in a God who can Uh, do miracles as he wants and as the Bible records but even the Bible records that such events are extremely rare the only time in the Bible when when miracles become commonplace is in the earthly ministry of Jesus that unique event um, which the Bible tells us God became man and in order to authenticate that this event was unique Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle. But even after the time of Jesus, those miracles fade off and uh, particularly uh, by 30 or 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. You simply do not find an emphasis in the New Testament letters on expecting lots of miracles to be done. No, miracles... Uh, overwhelmingly, are to authenticate Jesus. And though I firmly believe God is well capable of doing them, and though I firmly believe that miracles still occur today, I do not think that we should expect them to happen all the time. But more than that, I don't think Hebrews 11 is setting miracles before us as our main expectation indeed when you little look look a little closely a little more closely even what is achieved in the lives of the believers that he speaks of is achieved not so much by miracles they happen along the way on occasions but what he focuses on is their obedience. Great things are achieved through biblical faith, which leads to obedience. Look at Abraham, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his, his inheritance, obeyed. And went. He was called and he obeyed and went. Or Moses, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Faith achieves great things, says Hebrews 11, through obedience. Sometimes God backs that obedience up with overt miracles, such as the parting of the Red Sea. Sometimes his providential overruling is less obviously miraculous. When when Abraham, later in his life, obeyed God and took his son up a mountain, apparently to offer him as a sacrifice, God ordained that a ram should be stuck in a thorn bush as available as a substitute the cynic could say well rams get stuck in thorn bushes all the time what sort of a miracle is that but Abraham knew and we knew that that was God's providential provision at just the right time and just the right place to seal Abraham's act of obedience And sometimes it's not even providential overruling. Sometimes it's just the, the internal character of a person who, that is formed and forged in a real biblical faith that leads them to achieve great things. Did you notice verse 33, amongst all the, um, uh, the, the other things, some, some of those, through faith, administered justice. You know, it might be it might be questionable whether it's miraculous faith that, or a miracle that causes them to conquer kingdoms or uh, uh, gain what was promised. But but, but it's not a, not a miracle that someone or not the kind of miracle that we're talking about that we've been talking about that makes someone through faith administer justice. It's because faith has made them a just person as they learn to follow God. Perhaps he has Daniel in mind, who became obviously a rose above his peers simply through the quality of his character that God had forged in him. The primary call that Hebrews 11 makes, the primary call that is in every age to people of faith is to follow God. Christ, to obey God, and let God do the providential ordering or the overt miracles if he wants to. That's not the point. The point is, like Abraham, we leave Ur, that bright and shiny city, because God has called us to go. To unpromising Canaan. Like Moses, we leave Egypt with all its treasures because God has called us to go to the promised land. We obey. Through the obedience of faith, God can achieve amazing things. I mean, for instance, the uh, all of modern biblical Christianity, frankly, all of Protestant Christianity owes his existence at a human level to to one man who who did just that. His name was Martin Luther in the early sixteenth century he was rediscovering what the Bible really taught and getting himself into trouble in fifteen twenty one he got hauled before a church tribunal it was called a a diet funnily enough and it was in a town called Worms so uh, hence the schoolboy joke that Martin Luther lived on a diet of worms Um, uh, uh, and at this diet of worms Luther finally stated his position unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recount anything. For to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Luther's conscience was captive to the word of God and he was prepared to face death rather than go against it. Indeed, others before him had been killed. But this was God's moment. Against all the odds, Luther stayed alive and the movement which became called the Protestant Church was born. And history is full of such people. It is the essence of people who achieve something for God in their lives. I could mention William Carey, who became the father of modern missions, despite what those around him suggested, because he knew God had called him. Or closer to home. I could mention Gerald Hedegolf, who took on an almost dead church called Magdalen Road Mission Hall that was due to close in 1947 and because he was convinced that God had called him to do that, he served it faithfully and saw it revived and serving East Oxford so that now we inherit here what he established. What about the Founders more recently are the sunflowers and buttercup music groups. Karen Avery and Nick Carpenter set out a number of years ago to establish our buttercup and uh, sunflowers music music groups. So that now there are I think there's probably more than a thousand families have had some have been brought within the orbit of the of, of this church and the, the gospel. Or what about Sunday school teachers here? who have simply invested in those small children. I've been alive long enough now to see the little kids that I taught in Sunday school 30 years ago leading churches now. Well, what about those here who welcome newcomers and encourage them so that they, as they move through this church, as so many people do, were better equipped to serve Christ than are now serving Him all over the world. I think most of us have no idea at all how much the obedience of faith achieves. Acts of Christian obedience, you see, are like uh, have a sort of domino effect. Kind words to a neighbour lead to that neighbour coming to church, which leads to that neighbour's conversion, which leads to a fruitful life, which leads to dozens of people being converted in part through their ministry over life, which leads to churches being planted up and down the country. The fruitfulness of obedient Christian lives I think is extraordinarily larger than most of us imagine for our own lives. By faith, it is achieved. But now here's the most important thing. Now here's the main thing that I think we need to learn this morning for our culture. Yes, Biblical faith, Hebrews 11 makes it really clear, people who have faith in Christ can achieve great things. But biblical faith is about more than those more immediate rewards. Did you notice how verse 35 went on? Women received back their dead, raised to life, what a great short-term miracle, wonderful. there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Here's the thing, see. The obedience of faith is not dependent on those short-term achievements. True biblical faith is always Always, mainly focused on eternal reward. Here's where those health and wealth teachers go astray. It's not that God never does any miracles, that he never heals anyone, that he never makes anyone rich. It's just not the main point of what it means to be a Christian. Here is where our modern church cultures which exclusively talk about, about, about the good life that we can live now, leave us actually really, really weak as believers. Here is where the rubber hits the road for people who have drunk deeply of our culture. Will you be obedient if you personally get no reward in this life? More than that. Do you have a joy in God, a hunger for true reward that will make you actually choose that? Not reluctantly accept it, but actually choose that. To be obedient to God over instant gratification. Not because you must, but because you prefer it. Did you notice that? They were tortured... And they refuse to be released that they might gain a better resurrection. We're not even promised the pleasure of imagining ourselves famous after our death because of our sacrifice, which is what keeps a lot of people going. That seems to be the thrust of the next few verses. 36... Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The, the, the writer is drawing on some traditions here, perhaps, such as the tradition that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah was sawn was in two by a wicked king of Israel. But overwhelmingly, frankly, these People are completely unknown that he is describing and that's the point. I mean, if, you, if you go to cemeteries on the, on the western front of the First World War in Belgium um, as we did a few years ago as, as a family you will find in every cemetery at least one headstone and often many which just says, a soldier of the great war known unto God. Their bodies lie anonymously in that soil. And nobody, but nobody, knows who they were except God. And the brutal reality that every Christian must accept is that for the vast majority of us we don't, will not have names that reverberate down in history like Abraham and Moses and Martin Luther or even Gerald Hennigoff. We will be forgotten. Except by God and that is all that matters God's church is made up of innumerable people like that when they meet the risen Jesus face to face he will say to them well done good and faithful servant when they are risen to eternal life they will receive the applause of heaven and they will be welcomed into a great throng many of whom will say thank you personally for what you did for me but this world forgot them But God never did, and heaven never will. Are you prepared to live like that? The world, verse 38, was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes, in the ground but it was not a life of loss it was not a life of misery it was a life actually chosen by those people because they had a deeper hunger a deeper joy they looked forward to something better verse 39 these were all commended for their faith yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made Perfect. Their hope was to be gathered into that glorious, joyful, loving, happy resurrection, new heaven and new earth. Their hope was to be re embodied, to live forever, ever in the presence of God, to experience and give out a love that never ceased, indeed that grew as believer after believer loved one another, and then they in turn returned that love, and all together give that love and that praise to the God who is love. And so it grows. And they persevered. Looking for that inheritance. And they will not be disappointed. Perhaps you're elderly elderly here. And you are acutely aware that your outward body is wasting away. But you see, you are looking forward to a resurrection renewal so that this is not a last dwindling, petering out of your life. It is indeed the gateway to life. Perhaps you're middle-aged here, like me. And that cumulative weight of disappointments about all that we hoped we might achieve has, uh, has dampened your faith. Was your faith resting? on all those things that you thought you could achieve with Jesus Christ in this life? If so, it was a defective faith. Let your faith be bright and focused on the real promise, which is your eternal reward, and live the rest of your life with joy and determination and perseverance for your main good. Your main hope. And perhaps you are young here. And you're at a stage where actually that, that little cycle of short-term achievement still feels quite satisfying. It'll pull. You will meet disappointment after disappointment in your life. And you will find that 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 kind of life anyway doesn't build a contentment and satisfaction in you which is deeper in middle age and old age than it was when you were young. Will you set out to invest in your main hope, your main reward? politicians are worried about actually how unhappy people are David Cameron with his measure of happiness index is a witness to that and Christian leaders are worried about how unhappy Christians are very often And here, perhaps, is part of the reason. Let your joy be the joy that the Bible and Hebrews 11 calls you to. That he's prepared, as those people in verse 35 were prepared to do. They even refuse to avoid suffering, to gain a better resurrection short story writer Flannery O'Connor once described her life in this way she, she, she wrote to someone, she said picture me with ground teeth I presume that means teeth set in determination picture me with ground teeth stalking joy fully armed too as it's a dangerous quest Dangerous it is, potentially lacking all physical reward here and now. You may achieve great things or you may not, there is no promise. But it is a life of absolutely unbreakable joy. It's the life of millions upon millions of people of biblical faith. It's the life of Christ. Let me read his conclusion and then we'll pray. Hebrews 12 Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.